I'm wearing my happy clothes, right? <laughs> it's a wonderful thing for us to, to celebrate. And I, I love it, actually, that a lot of churches are now calling this Sunday Resurrection Sunday rather than just Easter, Easter Sunday because it, it highlights a really important element of the gospel. And uh, Christians, for the most part, focus on the cross. And we, we certainly do that when we take communion each, each week. And um, if you read Christian literature, so much of it is centred on the cross. But I, I've come across a few authors in recent times. What's funny about that? I've come across a few authors. <laughs> in recent times, who are arguing that the cross is not enough and that we actually must always speak in terms of not just the cross, but the resurrection as well. Michael Bird, I'm quoting from here, he's written quite a, a good evangelical systematic theology. He's Australian, by the way. He's done quite a lot of work with N.T. Wright, He's one of the best-known uh, modern-day theologians. He's an Anglican. And uh, Michael Bird and N.T. Wright have written a couple of quite significant books together. But this is what Michael Bird says in his Systematic Theology. If our gospel begins and ends on Good Friday, it is impoverished. If our gospel reduces the resurrection to a footnote, it is not telling the full story of, East, of the Easter message. Strange as it may sound to our ears, the cross is not enough. I have another quote from Joshua Swamidas. He's a scientist and in 2017 he published a quite influential piece as a scientist explaining why it is he believes in the resurrection this is part of what he says. Without the physical resurrection, 2,000 years of history are left begging for explanation, like a movie missing a key scene. No other event in recorded history has reached so far across national, ethnic, religious, linguistic, cultural, political and geographic borders. And you'll see that on the left-hand side of the screen, I have a photo there of the, the Holy Sepulchre. And uh, it's interesting, this is a quote from an archaeologist, John McRae, who I believe was uh, one of the team who was involved. When some years ago, not that long ago, actually, I think it was about 2015, there were some repairs being made to the Holy Sepulchre and for the first time in 500 years um, material was lifted up and they discovered marble slab. They actually discovered two marble slabs and they were able to do some scientific dating and the date that was thrown up was 350 AD, which is quite interesting because... Um, the first building that was structured was built on or structure that was built on that site was done so at the behest of Hadrian and uh, Constantine 
when he became a Christian, ordered that that be um, removed, and he had a, a church built on the site. There are two other locations uh, in Israel that some have argued are the burial spot of Jesus, but this is what John McRae says. Although absolute proof of the location of Jesus' tomb remains beyond our reach, the archaeological and early literary evidence argues strongly for those who associate it with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, a couple of quotes like that, of course, don't necessarily prove a lot because the big challenge we have in trying to establish the historical truth of the resurrection is that there is no contemporaneous eyewitness record of the resurrection. We didn't have CNN back then. No Channel 7's eyewitness news or anything like that. And in fact, Jesus was a nobody. There was no reason for anybody actually to keep a record of his life and death and his resurrection. And in fact, the religious leaders at the time had every reason to suppress the news of his resurrection. Robust archaeological evidence of Jesus does not exist. Now that happens to be true for 99.9% of people who lived at the same time. And as I said, he was really a nobody. I mean, he didn't actually get that many followers. It's true that crowds sometimes followed him. It is recorded in the Gospels. And yes, he fed a crowd of 3,000. And yes, he fed a crowd of 5,000. That's counting the men. So you can probably triple those numbers. But yet, when it came to his crucifixion, there were no crowds who were pleading for his release. Jesus himself, at the time, had very little influence. He was a nobody. His followers were regarded as nothing more than a sect within the Jewish faith. So really, nobody had any reason to record even his crucifixion at the time that it happened. From time to time we see, usually on um, Facebook or YouTube or somewhere like that, reports of discoveries of ossuaries, which were containers that, that held the bones of the dead with inscriptions on them that have names like Jesus and Joseph and Mary, but they were pretty common names. Like, you know, John, William. There were a lot of them. And uh, so I'm not using any of those discoveries as evidence of uh, the resurrection because I don't think they really meet rigorous tests of proof at all. So although there are relics that are claimed 
to be relics of Jesus, really the evidence surrounding those claims is not very robust at all. So we have this challenge as as Christians when there are no news archives at the time to verify that these things actually happened and there's no archaeological evidence either at least not at the moment we we might we might be getting to the point where there is some but right now based at least on my research we cannot claim archaeological evidence for his life what i want to do now is to take some time and i should warn you this might be a little bit long and a little bit boring sorry guys <laughs> Jeanette's shrugging her shoulders but I do think it's actually quite important that we understand the basis upon which we believe in the resurrection. I want to talk a little bit about biblical evidence, evidence that exists outside the Bible. I'm going to show you also a surprising calculation on the probability that the resurrection is true. And I also want to appeal to our own personal experience of the risen Lord. So let me turn to biblical evidence. And look, I, I want to stick to pretty robust materials here. Because none of this on its own really stands up to any kind of historical or scientific proof. But when we take it all together, the probabilities are in favour of the resurrection. So let me talk first about Old Testament prophecy. Now, we've, we've said before, I've said before from this platform, that there are literally hundreds of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by his life and death and resurrection. Now that's internal evidence, but if you don't really believe in the Bible, you're not going to believe in the evidence presented in the Bible itself. However, some manuscripts have been found and they've been dated using radiometric analysis, which is basically carbon dating, and they confirm that the prophecies of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus were actually made centuries before it happened. But in, in particular, the prophetic words about Jesus in Isaiah 53, that the earliest manuscripts have been dated at least 100 years before Jesus came to live on earth. References to him being pierced in his hands and his feet came long before the Romans invented crucifixion. And I think it is significant that we have scientific evidence 
of the age of some of these documents. They, they couldn't be forged, at least on the basis of common practice in the dating of ancient manuscripts. Turning to the New Testament, we have, I think, quite robust evidence. The first thing we do, of course, we've got the Gospels. Now, Matthew and John were disciples. Most scholars agree. Matthew was the tax collector. John was the beloved disciple. So they were eyewitnesses. Their Gospels represent eyewitness accounts, the closest we'll ever get, as it were, to news archives. Many modern critics of the Bible have little understanding about um, the ways in which writing was done way back in the first century AD. The four Gospels, and particularly the three so-called synoptic Gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark and Luke, they're written as biographies. But back then, biographies weren't, as it were, dispassionate third-person observations. Back then, writers used biographies to make moral points. So they weren't simply historical books. They were books that contained moral principle as well. Now, each of the Gospels would have also drawn on eyewitness accounts. We can be fairly certain of this because they were all written quite soon after Jesus had lived on earth. And Luke gives direct evidence of that in chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, where he explicitly states that he's reporting eyewitness accounts. Now, there's a lot of scholarship on the sources of uh, information that was used in those synoptic Gospels. Uh, many argue that um, Matthew and Luke, I think, used a lot of material from the book of Mark. And then Mark and John used material from another source. They call it Q for the Latin word quell. It just means another unknown source. But some fairly recent research on manuscripts, and there's about 500 manuscripts that have been used in this research. A large number of them have colophons suggesting publication dates as early as 38 AD for Matthew. That's eight years after Jesus was crucified and 40 AD for Mark, which is quite interesting because the, the received wisdom in the scholarship up until now has been that Mark was the first gospel that was actually published. Now, a colophon, um, if I go to, to the front of a book these days, this one's falling apart, but you know, at the front of a book, you'll normally have all the publication details, who published it, the date it was published, copyright notice and all that sort of thing. Well, in the old days, 
this information was actually at the back of a book. Now, of course, there was no printing press. These books, were, they were copied by hand. And the colophon was at the back of the book and it would have information about the date of publication, who was the author and so on. Well, there's quite a large number of manuscripts with colophons indicating that the Gospels were published much, much earlier than the received wisdom among scholars would suggest. I find this very, very interesting. Now, this, this research has been published in the last five years. So it's fairly recent and it won't have had time yet to get into anybody's study Bibles. Okay. Um, but hopefully there'll be more research done on these manuscripts and we'll be able to confirm that. So this all suggests that we can be fairly confident in the veracity of the gospel accounts of Jesus, including his resurrection. And incidentally, the Bible isn't one book. I know everybody really knows that, but the books of the Bible were written independently. So there's probably no case to be made that there was some great conspiracy behind the writing of the Gospels and the other books in the Bible for that matter. Some other evidence, and, and I'm not really even talking about the number of people recorded in the Bible who saw Jesus after his resurrection. What about the story of Paul? Now, he had no reason whatsoever to become a Christian. He was very well educated as a Roman and as a Jew. He was a Roman citizen, of course. He was probably one of the best educated Jewish scholars of his time, although he wasn't a rabbi. But he was also in an official capacity a persecutor of the Jews. He approved of the stoning of Stephen and his own confession is that he sought Christians to have them killed. What changed his life was his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. When Jesus appeared before him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This had a major impact on Paul because he spent the rest of his life suffering for what he believed. Remember, he was stoned, flogged, shackled, shipwrecked. He gave up the easy life 
of the Roman citizen and the Jewish scholar to become a missionary for Jesus Christ. His interpretation of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus became the foundation of the Christian church. There's some other biblical evidence that I'd like to point you to. As I said, I'm not listing all the people who are recorded in the Bible as having seen him after his resurrection. But sometimes in history, we can look at what you might call negative evidence to support a particular case. Three things really stand out. The first is that Joseph of Arimathea, who buried Jesus, was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now you see, if the story of the resurrection was fiction made up by the disciples, how would recording the fact that Joseph of Arimathea buried him, how would that lend any credibility to the story? Right, he was a member of the Sanhedrin who opposed Jesus. Now we don't know for sure why Joseph of Arimathea did, did it. He, he sought permission and was given permission, perhaps because the authorities thought that would make it more likely that once he was entombed, that's where he would stay. Don't know. The next kind of negative evidence is that the Bible records it was two women who discovered the empty tomb. Again, look, if you were fabricating a story, there's no way in that day and age you would use women as your witnesses because women's witness did not have any legal standing. You know how the the standard legal test was to reliable witnesses? Well, women just weren't reliable witnesses. They didn't count. They just didn't count. And then finally, a body was never found. A body was never found. And we're not going to find Jesus' bones in an ossuary somewhere. if he rose from the dead. And it's interesting that when you look through the book of Acts, the Jewish authorities, they don't deny the resurrection of Jesus, but they did try to suppress it. Remember, they told the apostles, stop telling the story. But they never said to the apostles, you're lying. Because there was never a body found. Let me move on now to talk a little bit about archaeology. Now archaeology has generally confirmed the Bible as a reliable historical document. And there was a paper published in about 2013 citing archaeological evidence that proved the existence of at least 50 of the people named in the Old Testament. 
And the more we find, the more confidence we can have that the Bible is a reliable source of historical truth. Now, that on its own, of course, doesn't prove the resurrection. All I'm saying is we demonstrate through archaeology that the Bible is a reliable um, source of historical information. Now, until recently, a lot of scholars didn't even believe that the town of Nazareth existed. So that was a bit of a nail in the coffin, so to speak. But in recent times, I've read an article published in 2015 that suggests that Nazareth did exist. Not only did it exist, but there is evidence of the childhood home of Jesus. And there's a photo there. It doesn't look too inviting, of course. And, and obviously, there needs to be a lot more archaeological work done to establish the truth of that. But it certainly appears now that we have evidence that Nazareth existed. Now, the other thing, and I guess this is kind of on the negative um, side of history in the sense that if it didn't happen, it kind of helps to prove the case of the resurrection. There is no evidence that the most likely site of the tomb, that is the Holy Sepulchre, was turned into a shrine early on. It's a shrine now. But you see, back back at the time Jesus lived, when someone important died, some important leader, a sage, someone like that, they would usually turn their burial place into a shrine and they'd venerate the remains, the bones of the deceased. There is no evidence, either archaeological or in any kind of written record, that the tomb of Jesus was turned into a shrine. That happened during the time of Constantine, as I suggested earlier, around about 350. Well, Constantine died shortly before then, but but somewhere in the first half of the fourth century. Let me now turn to written reports or written accounts outside the Bible. Now, I've only got, I think, four. Yes, I've only got four there. And the reason there's only four, um, many other apologists would say there's a lot more than that. The reason I've only got four there is these are the only four I could find that directly, directly address the resurrection. The others address the life and the crucifixion, but they don't specifically mention the resurrection. The first I have there is Josephus, who lived from about 37 or 38 AD to 100 AD. And there's an Arabic translation of his significant history that directly mentions the the resurrection. A lot of scholars dispute that that particular translation is reliable and they argue that Christian editors added the comments about the resurrection later on. So I wouldn't place too much weight on Josephus. But Phlegon, a Roman non-Christian 
who lived from the early 2nd century to the late 2nd century, mentions the resurrection directly, as does Ignatius. He was a Christian. He was a friend of Polycarp, who in turn was a disciple of John. So pretty close to the horse's mouth, as it were. And then Justin Martyr, who also lived in the second century, he was a Christian apologist. He directly mentions the resurrection as well. Another source of confirmation of the resurrection is the explosion of the early Christian church. It grew from literally nothing. A handful of people who stayed in that upper room, who on the day of Pentecost were filled with the Holy Spirit and were empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak out fearlessly the truth of the gospel. John was the only one of the disciples who actually witnessed the crucifixion. The rest of them had deserted Jesus. Yet within weeks, they were fearlessly, courageously proclaiming the resurrection. And we see that recorded in Acts chapters 4 and 5. And this despite the enormous efforts that the Jewish authorities went to to suppress the news of his resurrection. Resurrection was the prevailing teaching of the apostles in those early days. Acts 4.33 The church grew rapidly. It was no longer an obscure Jewish sect. We see that after that memorable speech of Peter, remember Peter was the guy who denied the Lord three times and Peter was totally transformed by the Holy Spirit and he spoke boldly before the religious leaders that very day, the very day on Pentecost, 3,000 people joined this no-name, unimportant sect. The church grew very rapidly and that's recorded in Acts chapters 2 and 4. And Christianity exists today. Despite the persecution, Christianity exists today and about one third of the world's population tick a box. Are you Christian? Yes, I'm Christian. And today, people are willing to be martyred on the basis that they accept the truth of the life, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Now I want to show you another another slide, another piece of evidence. This was published in the early 2000s, about 2003, uh, by an academic at the University of, of Oxford he used a very complex formula which I've seen I don't fully comprehend it but 
a very complex formula published in his he published it in a book it was published by um, an authoritative academic publisher the Clarendon Press uh, based at Oxford and he used this very complex approach to probability uh, using historical information and he calculated what the probability of the resurrection was now would anyone like to guess the probability a probability has to lie between zero no chance and one absolute absolute point point did you say point zero jesse you're wrong sorry <laughs> angus 20 sorry point four you're wrong but you're warmer than jesse was I'm going to reveal it. Now, of course, there's been lots of criticism of that that work, but this guy used a standard approach to probability analysis, and that's what he came up with. The probability that the resurrection is true, 0.97. That's pretty close to one, isn't it? Pretty close to one, so it's pretty close to a dead certainty. I want now to suggest another piece of evidence, and that is the internal witness. And I had talked about this before when I was um, sharing about whether or not we could actually believe that the Bible was true. And most people who are not Christians would never accept this. But those of us who are, do have a knowingness in our hearts about the truth. Now this is Michael Bird again. He's the guy who wrote the Evangelical Systematic Theology. This is what he says. To be sure, There is no absolute proof of the resurrection. It comes down to whether one trusts in the early church's witness to Jesus mediated through scripture. Then he goes on to say, in August of 1994, I died to the world. Through the gift of faith, I thereafter considered myself to be crucified with Christ and now I live by some strange and wonderful quickening whereby I exist in union with that same Jesus who could not be shackled by death. So regardless of where we get to when we look at the evidence that I've presented to you this morning, there is, in addition, the internal witness of what we ourselves experience when we surrender our own lives and choose to die with Jesus and be born again or resurrected by the Holy Spirit. One of the quotes I started with was from Joshua Swamidas. I've got a long quote that I'd like to read from him. It's not on the the slides, but I just want to share this with you. Now, he's a scientist at um, a major American university. 
and this is most of what he says in the conclusion to the article he first published in 2017. In the question of the empty tomb, science itself reaches its hard limit. It points to something beyond itself. First, the resurrection is God's direct supernatural action in a specific physical event in history. The obvious finality of physical death, both in modern science and to the ancient world, serves to highlight the role of God in this moment. We never consider God's action in science. So we cannot even ask the question without opening our minds to things beyond science. Second, the entire Christian faith hinges on the physical resurrection of Jesus. But no resurrection mechanism for science to study is proposed. As a mechanism-free singular event that defies all natural laws, we are well outside science's ability to adjudicate facts and understand evidence. And third, the question of the resurrection is more like an opportunity to fall in love than a scientific inquiry. There is evidence, but the resurrection cannot be studied dispassionately. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it reorders everything. Just like falling in love, it changes our view of the world. The final verdict for me is that the resurrection makes sense through the lens of history. I find the creator of all that science studies comes to us in this way. The evidence is compelling, but not definitive. Faith in Jesus is reasonable and is certainly not without evidence. So we are left with an invitation. Will you too believe? Will we be curious? Will we respond with trust? Finally, Peter Hitchens, brother of Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist who's now dead. Peter Hitchens was a guest on Q&A, that uh, infamous <laughs> ABC program. It was probably about seven years ago now. And he was asked about Jesus. And he said, if you believe in Jesus, it changes everything. If you don't believe in Jesus, it changes everything. That's what we're dealing with here. Something that happened in history that we believe and it changes everything. It changes everything. Ultimately, science is not capable of proving one way or the other whether the resurrection actually happened. I've shared with you a body of evidence that certainly points to the veracity of the record that we read in the gospel accounts and that explains why it is that the apostles were prepared to be martyred for what they believed. And it's that belief that drove 
the explosive development of the Christian church in that first century and that today drives people to martyrdom in many countries of the world and drives us to be as we are. We have an internal witness to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And of course we we make invitation to folk who have never received Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. It is so simple as we sang in Table of Grace this morning. Just come as you are. Come as you are. All you have to do is to have the courage to say Jesus is Lord and to believe that God raised him from the dead. God bless you. Happy Easter. Be confident 